Welcome to Tackling the NFL, the only NFL podcast who doesn't believe that the key to success is getting rid of everyone on your good offensive line. That's about the Raiders who have managed to salary dump pretty much every good player who is left to protect Derek Carr. And now Kenyon Drake too. And Kenyon Drake, (laughs) yes, the three-headed monster of Kenyon Drake, Josh Jacobs, and Derek Carr. Not to mention Jalen Richard, who's still on that team. <laughs> oh, how could I forget? Debatably better than Kenyon Drake. Um, <laughs> at the role that at least Drake's going to be asked to do. That is not what we're going to be talking about. We are going to be talking about free agency today. As promised, we have compiled a team of the best free agent signings from this offseason, or at least the first week of the offseason. So obviously there will be some guys who haven't been signed yet who we can't talk about, but... I think it's actually really good. We talked about last week how we weren't going to have time to go over all the things with an instant reaction. And that actually worked out nicely, I think, because it's way too easy to say, as we almost did with the Patriots, as we started to do with the Patriots, these signings are out of control. What are they doing? They're giving $24 million to Jalen Mills. And when you stop and you look at it, and then the numbers actually come out and you get to see the details of the contracts, it lets you do a much more nuanced analysis and not just, you know, spout off crazy takes that actually have no real significance as fun as those are i I do enjoy doing that (laughs) that is a regular on our podcast the crazy takes with little to no evidence that often are incorrect yeah yeah you know it's the sports media complex i will take it but this week we have had some time to reflect some time to look at the actual numbers and so we are going to give you a definitive or debatable perfect nfl team i guess at least the starters built out of the best contracts from free agency this year. So that doesn't mean the best players. That doesn't mean everyone who signed for a huge contract. That means the contracts that we thought were the best value at each position. And so that's not all small, like small name guys you might not have heard of. It's some of them. And then other guys who are really good players who are signed for big contracts, who are going to provide that kind of value to their team, or at least we think. Yeah, we didn't just choose like the the most notable signings. We also chose the ones that we thought were the best fitting and uh, the biggest bang for their buck. So let's get right into it. Um, And we each have our own team. We'll just bounce ideas off each other and figure out what we think about everything. And we'll just start at quarterback. So arguably the most important position on the field with very little options available in free agency. Unsurprisingly, once Dak Prescott signed his extension. So I'm guessing we have the same player here. But Adam, who did you choose as the best deal at quarterback? I chose my guy, Ryan Fitzpatrick. One year, I did not go with him. That's interesting. For, uh, for the Washington football team, I thought that this was the perfect fit for the Washington football team. And I wasn't even thinking about them as a landing spot for him when he hit free agency. He basically single-handedly took the Miami Dolphins into the playoffs last year or close to the playoffs last year. And including, and he knocked out the Raiders with a ridiculous throw, one of the craziest ones I've ever seen. I just think that as a quarterback, he brings so much valuable value to that team because they can go anywhere this offseason now. If they want to draft one at 19, they can. Uh, if they don't want to, they have Ryan Fitzpatrick as a go-to guy to help uh, develop Ryan, um, sorry, not uh, Taylor Heineke. And I think that it's a perfect spot for only $10 million. And that is how you sign a quarterback for $10 million. So I agree with parts of that. I have questions about the fit in Washington. I didn't really see it. I I think it'll be fun. I do think it's going to be fun. 
but his fit in Scott Turner's offense is debatable. Turner's offense is built around more like quick hitting, shorter passes, less type of stuff that Fitzpatrick wants to do. I think it's going to be really, really fun because when you combine Fitzpatrick and you combine Terry McLaurin and you add uh, Curtis Samuel in there like they did with Antonio Gibson also as one of those joker type of guys who can run and catch the ball, it's going to be really fun. It's going to be an interesting offense. How many turnovers that's going to end up with, like how, <laughs> what it's going to look like, I think remains to be seen and how they're going to like balance out the identity disputes is sort of where it's sort of where I'm and at. And also, but I, do I don't agree. know how much, I don't know how much we're going with this whole, this is a team thing with all these free agents. But if this is one of those things where this is my team heading into it, Brian, Fitz, Brian Fitzpatrick is the guy you want with little to no experience with the team to throw in with a bunch, with 10 other guys. Now, that's a great point. I, I wasn't really thinking of it as an actually a full team, but that is an interesting Neither point. Neither was I. Neither was I. <laughs> the main reason I found this contract just sort of strange is just because the Washington football team is such a young team. And by adding an older quarterback, it puts them in a good position to succeed this season. But they have the 19th pick in the draft, as we know. If they're lucky, Mac Jones is there, and we neither of us like Mac Jones. So their path to getting a young quarterback or a quarterback of the future is slim. And this doesn't really put them any closer to that, but it will make them more that, interesting. That depends on how high you are on Taylor Heineke. Because Not that high. Some well, are higher like than 28. Other. Right, but like relatively young compared to Ryan Fitzpatrick. And he can give you yeah. a good six years if he turns out well. The dinosaurs are young compared to Ryan Fitzpatrick. <laughs> <laughs> the quarterback I chose was Jameis Winston, who signed a one-year, <laughs> yeah, $5.5 million contract with the Saints, and then some incentives in there. And I thought that it was just a great contract because the Saints get the best quarterback on the market, and he's still the third highest-paid quarterback on his own team. Case Keenum is making more than him in 2021. That's ridiculous. And so this is just such a fun sign because he should unlock a vertical passing attack for the Saints, which they just didn't have under Drew Brees. And then when Taysom Hill played last season, and if he can limit the turnovers, he'll probably be the biggest bargain in the league. But at this salary, he's probably coming in to, uh, into a competition during camp for the starting job with Taysom Hill. I think it's going to end up being Jameis's job because we know exactly what Taysom Hill is. And as limited as their passing offense was with Drew Brees, it was even more limited passing-wise with Taysom Hill at the helm, even though it did add some dimension in the run game, which is interesting, just probably not a great way to win playoff games if that's what their goal is. So that's why I think that this is probably Jameis's job to lose from here on out. Yeah, I, that's completely fair. That was the other option. It was really between those two because those are the only like significant quarterback signings that weren't Andy Dalton. And speaking of Andy Dalton, let's talk about that contract. Okay, great. And then I have one other quarterback I want to talk about. Probably need to okay. move faster through the other positions. Um, but I guess we're starting with Andy Dalton. And I mean, Ryan uh, Pace is apparently <laughs> trying to save his job with Andy Dalton. Uh, yeah. Why him? He's betting his job on the red. I don't know the Red the, Rocket. I don't. But, but like, but like they they got rid of Kyle Fuller to get the cap room to get Andy Dalton. That, oh, yeah. That, Kyle Fuller will be coming up later. Uh, I'm baffled. I don't I don't see any reason well, okay, why this is a good football move. Yeah, no, it isn't a good football move. Although, to be fair, Andy Dalton is a perfectly mediocre, ah. low-tier, like, uh, yeah. yeah, average to low-tier quarterback in the NFL, which is fine. There are some teams that can use that. The Bears might even be one of them, but we can't be looking at this like a normal rational football team making a decision. We're looking at a team where Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy know that they're on the hot seat. So 
they're just flailing because it doesn't matter. They don't care about what the Bears' long-term plan is. They're just doing whatever they can in the short term to possibly maybe scratch out a few wins now and save their jobs. So it's not really just, part of a long-term plan. It just it doesn't need to make any sense. It kind of ruins the whole point of football, though. When you, when you got when you got two executives trying to save their jobs and tanking the team as a result and not even going after Russell. Like, uh, well, apparently they did go time. after Russell. Not, the Seahawks no, were just never going to trade him. A lot harder than, than they did. The Seahawks they were never going to. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was mathematically impossible for the Seahawks to take on a $40 billion dead cap hit by trading him yeah. this year. So yeah. the final quarterback I actually want to talk about, though, is Cam Newton. Because I am still higher on him than most. He signed a one-year $5.5 million contract with incentives relatively similar to Jameis Winston. And he's definitely not locked into starting week one. They could absolutely go after a quarterback in the draft. I would love to see like a Trey Lance trade up as really a younger Cam Newton. That's what he reminds a lot of people of, maybe slightly more accurate. But that's an interesting proposition. Assuming that he goes into camp at week one, the others as the starter in week one, the Patriots have built a team that is perfectly suited to take advantage of Cam Newton's strengths. Because, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about them later, but the two tight ends that they signed, Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith, are both really good at run. Well, Hunter Henry's really good at run blocking. Smith tries at the very least. And they're both really good at running routes and getting separation, which is better than any of their receivers did last season. And the reason that I like this so much is because Cam Newton has always been a nightmare for defenses. Because football is all about math. And Cam Newton completely changes the math. When your quarterback is that big and such a good runner, it's so much harder for a defense to assign a player to him and to figure out how to stop that offense. And then when you add those two tight ends, that makes it so much harder to determine what a team is going to do, whether they're going to run or whether they're going to pass. It makes it even harder on defenses. So I just think that all of these moves make a really interesting, really unique Patriots offense that seems more like something we might see in like the 70s and 80s than we would in the year 2020, but might take the lead by storm because no one else is prepared for it. Yeah, Bill Belichick wanted to do this last year with his drafting of Asiasi and Izzo as his two tight ends. That just didn't work Keen. out. Izzo's already there. Oh, Keen, sorry. I, either way, he wanted this to work last year, and it just they didn't have the people to do it. And now that they have the people to do it, Bill Belichick can finally implement his plan that he's been planning on for, what, two years now? So I think we might see like this whole new type of offense, Belichick offense that proves once again why he's the greatest coach of all time. And so there's been a lot of comparisons to the Rob Gronkowski, Aaron Hernandez offenses, obviously, with that had Tom Brady with them. And I think that we could see maybe some similarities in the passing game. But what that completely changes is the run game. Because if Kim Newton's healthy, having him running the ball is so difficult for defenses to stop when you factor in those two tight ends. So that's what I'm excited to see. And that's why I want to talk yeah. about it a little bit. Yeah, and we'll get to them later too. Oh, sure. So at running back, Adam, who did you choose? <laughs> this one was really tough because you know how much we hate running backs. But since I had to choose one, I went with Chris Carson. Uh, two years, $10.5 million total, five year, five million a year. Not bad for a pretty solid running back whose really only fault is his injury problems. I think that compared to the, uh, to the other like signing deals, uh, to the other deals, this was the only one I could choose from. I didn't really like the other deals that some of the running backs were getting. They were getting paid a little too much for my comfort. And I thought that five million a year wasn't too bad for a Chris Carson level guy. 
I think that deal's fine. The Seahawks just have so many problems that investing in a running back is sort of a risky proposition here when they already have Rashad Penny on the roster, who actually looked pretty good the last time we saw him. He spent most of last year recovering from an injury. I, I think that it's not a bad contract. They'll probably be fine paying him like $4 million or whatever they're paying him this year. The player I went with might actually surprise you, but I went with Aaron Jones, who re-signed with the Packers, because if you look at the structure of that contract, it's actually very advantageous for the Packers and where they are as a franchise because the Packers gave Aaron Jones a $13 million signing bonus to avoid incurring a huge uh, cap hit or taking on guaranteed money in future years. So by doing that, it makes it easier on their cap right away. So in 2021, his cap hit is only $4.5 million. And then when you look at the actual contract, it's just a two-year contract for $20 million, which is perfectly reasonable for a player of his caliber. It's pretty much two franchise tags or maybe actually a little bit less. And when you factor in that he's a perfect running back for their zone running scheme, and they're all in on 2020, it just makes sense to me because this is probably, well, not probably, maybe Aaron Rodgers' last ride in Green Bay. So they might as well maximize it. And with a deal of this size, at least with the money in 2021, it's not going to prevent them from adding a quarterback, which was my biggest concern when I thought they might pay him before. So that, that's why I actually ended up liking him more than I expected to. Okay, yeah. So I, I had him on my list too, but I didn't, I, I ended up just not going with him because it was a lot of money for a running back and just in general. But I, I can see that it's very favorable for the for the Packers. But for my one, I had a bad contract for the running backs too. And that was Kenyon Drake. Two years, $14.5 million, seven mil a year, more than Chris Carson for a backup running back to Josh Jacobs in a system that has no offensive line in a group that didn't even rely on Josh Jacobs that much last year, I can't even under, start to understand why they, they signed Kenyon Drake. I, I can't come up with a good reason. I'm just looking at the money now, and the way this contract is structured confuses me even more because they guaranteed more of his salary in 2022 than they did in 2021. He's guaranteed $5.5 million in 2022. What what is the purpose behind all this? Like usually you front load the guaranteed money set that way you can cut them if you need to when this contract inevitably turns out to be a disaster. <laughs> it, it it's it might be like the worst signing this offseason just because of how useless that contract is. Like it, like what what does he add to this team? Is just, What did you see in Kenyon Drake that you didn't see in anyone else in the NFL? Anyone and, else. And 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 beyond that when you look at that in the broader context of what this team has been doing, as I referenced in my introduction, they're tearing down their offensive line. They're getting rid of, they got rid of Rodney Hudson, who is still one of the best centers in the league for pennies on the dollar. They almost cut him and ended up getting at least something for him. They got rid of Gabe Jackson. Uh, they traded away Trent Brown. They've torn apart what should have been a very good offensive line. And they've basically left Derek Carr exposed, and do you expect to have a really good run game by adding Kenyon Drake and subtracting offensive linemen? Like, there's just so many questions here. It doesn't make any sense. Like, this isn't flag football. You don't just get all the skilled players and get rid of the fat people. You need the fat people to hold your skilled players together, and they're doing it completely wrong. <laughs> all right. So let's move on to tight ends, where there were just weren't any interesting contracts signed. So I went with Hunter Henry as my favorite contract, and I didn't even Me like too. that contract that much. I did too. It was just the best of the rest, almost. Yeah. I again, like I said, I think it provides an interesting situation for what they'll do with him. But giving him three years, $37 million, is still a lot for a player who's been really injury prone. 
Johnny Smith's contract is sort of baffling because he got an, he got one more year than Hunter Henry on pretty much the same contract. He got an extra year guaranteed for having far less proven production than Henry. So if those yeah, contracts just, were flipped, I might understand it a little bit. I don't understand it in this situation. Yeah, Johnny Smith, all he's shown is that he can score touchdowns, but anyone can if he's targeted that much in the red zone. And I, I really like the Hunter Henry signing. I'm starting to like it more and more as I start to look into it because. Bill Belichick knows how to use that YISO tight end role, that package that he used for so long with Rob Gronkowski, with quick slot guys coming under. And I think that Hunter Henry will be a huge part of that Patriots offense next year, and Bill Belichick will exploit holes in defenses like no other coach can. The Johnny Smith thing is tripping me up a little bit. Just having two solid tight ends is important. I just think they paid him way too much money. They're definitely leaning all in on the 12 personnel wave that we talked about coming into last season and continued through last season and is probably going to continue into this season, clearly. Yeah, I think that's about it for me for tight ends. Henry's also a better blocker than Smith, which is just why it makes Smith's contract more baffling. Like, Smith is athletic. That's great. He can He's shown that he can catch touchdowns. He can jump out of the gym. I don't really know why you're giving him how much? Like, almost $50 million or something like that? Uh, Yeah. I think exactly 50 mil. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I was looking at all the tight ends. The only one I was contemplating a little bit was Kyle Rudolph to the Giants, which I really like. For that little amount of money to replace the production that we saw in Everett Engram, I think that he's a very solid red zone guy. And I think that for the, for the price, it was a perfect sign. I need to check the price. So they gave him... Four and a half. Ah, I, I guess. It was a I mean, little steep, four and a half. But, but for his value, what he's going to be got used as, I think it was a good value. I think it's a good price. I, I would sort of disagree with that. Just because he's 32 years old, he's basically going to be only a red zone tight end. And Evan Ingram is still on the roster, so they haven't gotten rid of him. Now they need to find a trade for him if they actually intend to move forward with Kyle Rudolph as his lead tight end. And Rudolph's production has waned in each of the past couple of years. So... Betting on a player on a downswing is probably a ri- much riskier idea when they're on the wrong side of 30. At the same time, there is ways to involve him in this offense. I just think that when you also, when you just added Kenny Galladay, like how much is he actually, how involved is he actually going to be in the red zone? Yeah. I just watched uh, uh, some clips of his highlights from last year. He had some crazy one headed catches. I was like, that's, that's who they need in the red zone. I mean, his hands can't be worse than Ingram's. <laughs> exactly that's you got the polar opposite you got the replacement yeah just Ingram is actually athletic and can move but um <laughs> let's move on to wide receivers where I went with some wildly diverse signings so we've got three of them for this one because we are building a team that's running out of 11 personnel on offense at the very least so I'm starting out with John Brown who signed with the Raiders this was a move I actually liked from the Raiders maybe the only one of the offseason except for maybe Yannick Ngakwe which was just a good good value at the very least. But John Brown's contract was just an excellent signing. They got him for one year, $3.5 million, when he was a wide receiver one in 2019 and spent a ton of time open, even though he was getting teams top cornerbacks. We've talked about it before that Josh Allen just couldn't hit him in 2019. And he actually like got better, I guess, over the offseason and started hitting Stephon Diggs on so many of those throws in 2020, which made Diggs look a lot better and Brown basically got shunned and was spent a lot of 2020 injured. He ended up being a cap casualty because the bills are right around the cap and needed to fix up their offensive line. 
And by doing this, the Raiders are replacing Nelson Aguilar, which was the one contract that the Patriots signed that just made no sense whatsoever to me at a fraction of the cost. So I thought it was just a great signing. Well, while you brought up Nelson Aguilar, I think we should talk about this contract. I have him him as my one bad wide receiver contract. Two years, $22 million. It doesn't make any sense to me. He ranked 45th among 99 wide receivers last year despite having easily his best, his most productive season. And we've seen a lot out of him for, from the past couple of years, and he's ranked 73rd out of 74 qualifying wide receivers for the past five years. Sure, he had one breakout year, and breakout in quotation marks because that doesn't make it, it like it was a good season. It wasn't a great season. $22 million is a lot of money to be given someone who's at boomer bust. And it gets even worse when you take a deeper look at the contract because it's very easy to say $22 million. Like uh, Kendrick Bourne got somewhere around $22 million on three years. He's not actually getting $22 million. He's getting like $4 million this year, maybe a little bit more next season. Nelson Aguilar is probably getting $22 million. He has $16 million guaranteed. Like they can't move on from him after a year if slash when it doesn't work because you think Cam Newton's realistically going to be hitting him deep. He averaged 18.8 yards per catch last year, and that is the polar opposite of what the Patriots offense was doing last year and from what they've been building looks to be trying to do this year. If they wanted to get a field structure, they probably could have just signed Deshaun Jackson or they could have signed someone like John Ross, for God's sake. Or anyone cheaper than that. (laughs) This is just so much money for a player who doesn't fit in with or doesn't seem to fit in at the very least with the rest of their plan. It's not, I mean, it's not beneficial to either sides. I guess it's beneficial to Aguilar because he's making a lot more money than he should. But it, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. I guess the Patriots have a specific scheme that they're looking to fit. So I can't knock it until I see it. But I can't imagine what I see is going to be too good out of Nelson Aguilar. Sure. Now, what wide receivers did you like? Just start with one of them, I guess. Well, the first one I think you're going to definitely agree with is Corey Davis. Three years. million, $12.5 million a year. This could be one of the biggest deals at wide receiver contracts for the next decade. I think he's going to be an insane number one wide receiver in that Jets offense. And they haven't had someone like that in so long that it's going to be a big shift in that entire morale in that on that of that Jets team. Just like you just talked about how uncatchable his catches have been this uh, this season, only 63% of his targets were deemed catchable. And he still put up the eighth best wide receiver grade and um, according to Pro Football Focus. He managed to turn 26.7% of his total targets into a gain of 15 plus yards. He's been ridiculous the past couple of years. And I think that he, that's going to completely transfer onto the Jets and he's going to be insane. I agree with pretty much everything you said. The one thing I would sort of disagree with, and it's actually a positive for the Jets, I think, is that he won't actually need to be a wide receiver one. He can, he, he's going to be their lead receiver. I don't disagree with that. I just don't think that he's going to need to take on the responsibilities of a guy like DeAndre Hopkins or someone like that. Instead, he can be a good compliment to Jameson Crowder, Denzel Mims. Like it's going to, he's going to fit really nicely with them. And rather than spending like twice the amount that they spend on him on a receiver, on a slightly better receiver like Kenny Galladay, they spent a reasonable amount of money. He fits well with Mike LaFleur's system in the play action heavy system that he was using in Tennessee. It should be somewhat similar. I, I think it's just a perfect signing. And when you factor in that they're probably going to sign or they're probably going to draft, sorry, a young quarterback, 
you met, you mentioned how uncatchable his passes were or his targets were. He has huge hands. He's going to make it a lot easier for that young quarterback to develop and just give them a good option, especially over the middle that they can trust. Yeah, I think Zach Wilson will love Corey Davis. Don't, don't, don't do it. Actually, you know what? I'm a Dolphins fan. I would love if they drafted Zach Wilson over Justin Fields. <laughs> I, I'm a Falcons fan, so I can only pray that the Falcons, for some reason, draft a quarterback after that weird Matt Ryan contract. Yeah. For the record, he was one of my receivers that I had on my list. So I have one more, and I assume, well, if we share this one, you have one more. If not, you have two. So my last receiver was um, Will Fuller, who signed with the Dolphins for one year, $10.5 million, which yep. as a Dolphins fan, sort of, I, I can't even argue that this is a homework pick. I think it's just a really reasonable contract and makes Nelson Aguilar's contract look that much more ridiculous. It's a short commitment. If they like the fit, they can extend him midseason, which would also be great. And the main, the main point of this contract is that the Dolphins finally get Tua, a receiver that can separate. Because Fuller is obviously a deep threat, but he's also a much better route runner than he gets credit for usually. And in 2020, the Dolphins receiver core is built around heavy guys, guys like Devontae Parker, Preston Williams, whose best attribute was that they could go up, get 50-50 balls. And I talked about it before, but Tua wouldn't throw those because he's just not really used to that. And he will need to adjust somewhat and move towards that, but he doesn't need to go all that way. Instead, I think that with Fuller actually getting separation downfield a little bit, I think that it's going to clear up what I think was more of a mental block than a physical problem for Tua throwing downfield, and I think he's going to improve a lot in that regard. Yeah, when I saw this signing, the first person that I thought of was, um, was it Albert Wilson that the, that the Dolphins had? Yeah, that was, wow, that is a name that I hadn't thought of in a little while. I, I, th- I thought about Albert Wilson on crack, because as a slot receiver or a receiver that can move around the field, he is so quick and he can make adjustments that really the the Dolphins haven't had in an offense for so long. So I think that he brings he what he brings to this team is so important and versatile and compared to the rest of their wide receivers, which are very, I don't want to say one dimensional, but the clear function. I think it, this is a great change of pace and for only 10 mil or a little bit more, that's a great sign. Exactly. And it's not even necessarily a problem that their other receivers are one-dimensional. It's just that they share that same attribute, which is sort of the yeah. problem. You don't want too many wives. Exactly. Exactly. So who do you have, I think, as your last receiver? So this one, okay, before anyone gets mad at us for not choosing Kenny Galladay, we acknowledge that Kenny Galladay is a huge acquisition and every Giants fan is absolutely adoring that, that signing. Uh, Are they? It's just, I think this takes them farther away from the goal. I actually no, think this I, is a net negative for them. Just, I know, I 100% agree with you. That's why I didn't choose him. I just think looking at like social media and the reaction to this signing, Giants fans are just relieved that they got him because they're kind of worried that they were going to go through free agency without getting a wide receiver. And Kenny Holiday was kind of like their dream guy. So I understand that, but put emotions to the side. It's not that great of a signing, a little expensive for a wide receiver. That's not that much better than, than the rest of the field, but be happy, whatever. I'm not going to say it's a bad signing. It's just not good. So, so my third wide receiver was Curtis Samuel. This signing was a perfect fit for the Washington football team. $34.5 million, um, 11.5 a year. Cause it's a three-year contract. Scott Turner's going to fall in love with Curtis Samuel. Oh, he's obviously rejoining uh, Ron Rivera, so that's going to be a, a, a very nice connection to have starting off. And Terry McLaurin, who are 
who was his roommate at Oklahoma or sorry at Ohio State and it's just it's going to be that that fit that fast wide receiver that JD McKissick had to play way too much last year and he's going to be all over the field while Logan Thomas is develops into a more and more solid tight end Antonio Gibson's going to be running the backfield and then McLaurin's going to be running next to him that wide that that entire offense is going to be so much faster with Curtis Samuel and they're going to have so much availability to to make new types of offensive plays that they just didn't have. Yes, but you are forgetting their critically important wide receiver, Antonio Gandy-Golton, who's oh, going in for his yes. breakout season, baby. Yes, the kick returner. <laughs> I, I do agree. I think this is a good signing for them. He already has played in Scott Turner's offense, which is why I think that he's a little bit more comfortable with signing him. What they need to do is they need to make sure that he stays in the slot more because when Scott Turner had him, he had him playing the Y a little bit too much in Carolina, and it just didn't work as well. When he got to play in the slot more this past season, he was just so much more productive. And that happened because Carolina brought in Robbie Anderson uh, to be to have him and DJ Moore be their outside receivers, and Samuel played the slot. And as you mentioned last year, they had J.D. McKissick running so many of their slot routes. Like, I like J.D. McKissick. I think he did a pretty good job, but that's not a sustainable path to success. Yeah. So. This contract is a little, it's, you know, a decent chunk of money, which is why I didn't put it on there just because he only really has one season with this type of production, but it is, it has high upside. And with uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick just slinging the ball around, he's definitely going to get a lot of targets. Yeah. And I just think they're going to have so much fun. That entire offense is going to be so much fun to watch because I thought Terry McLaurin was getting a little upset the past couple of years with his, with his usage. But now that he has a teammate from college with him, Curtis Samuel's back with his coaches from Carolina. I feel like it's going to be a much better vibe in Washington. And I can't wait to watch them play for the first time in a long time. And also, it's just that Terry McLaurin, over the, over the last maybe five to six games of the season, defense has concentrated so much of their attention on McLaurin. He was getting double teamed on pretty much every route because they didn't have to worry. Literally, their second biggest worry was J.D. McKissick in the past. Or Logan Thomas. And that makes it really hard. And Logan Thomas, I guess. Yeah. And that was really what was frustrating McLaurin because he just couldn't get open when he's being covered by so many people. And so with this addition, it's going to make it easier on him. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Perfect. Well, I, moving to the let's, offensive let's line. Let's just get through the first offensive tackle pretty quickly. I, I think Trent, did you have Trent Williams? I did. He was my second, but it didn't really matter the order. Yeah. I, yeah. I think with Trent Williams, it didn't really matter what contract he got. We had to include him because he's just that much better than the rest of the offensive tackles in the NFL. And honestly, I think they got pretty lucky for only $23 million a year. But I guess when you're, when you're paying him that much money, it's, it's not, you're never lucky, but it's, it's, it's a great contract and he's the highest graded offensive tackle by a mile. So there's not much argument there. They're lucky that they still have a franchise left tackle. It's almost impossible to get one. Yeah. But at the same time, it is a ton of money to pay for someone who's going to be 33 going into the season. You, there, you do have to take into account that offensive linemen generally age better than most football players. Andrew Whitworth is a good example of someone who's nearly 40 and is still playing well. Yep. Joe Thomas had some of his best years towards his 40s. Yeah. And one, and one other thing is that he also sat out the 2019 season, which is a year less of wear and tear. So you can consider him almost like a year younger in football terms. That's another good thing. He doesn't like it. The one thing, <laughs> the one thing that concerns me, though, is that Trent Williams is one of the most athletic linemen in the league. And that's how he succeeds. I mean, he's 
insanely fast for a guy of his size. His speed lets him get to blocks that other offensive tackles can't get to. And when he ages, I have to assume that his athletic gifts are probably going to be the main thing to go. And so that's sort of why I wonder how this contract is going to age. But at the same time, the 49ers can get out of this contract after three years if they don't like how it's going. And so it's probably not going to be that much of a long, it probably won't hurt them long-term if they decide they don't want it to. I think it's a perfectly good signing. And as you mentioned, they had to pay whatever they wanted or whatever he wanted just to get him to stay. Yeah, and their blind side is safe now for at least three years. It's a nice buffer zone. Yep, I agree with that. Do you want to do the other offensive tackle spot or do you want to go to guard and then loop back around? Um, Let's just knock out the, the offensive tackles. Who is your second tackle? I'm wondering if you thought of this one, but I chose Riley Reef, who signed with the Bengals. I didn't. I don't know if I pronounced his name right. Reif? I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. But um, he signed a one-year $7.5 billion contract. And one of the first ways that I knew that it was probably a good signing was because Vikings fans were not happy about letting him go. He was a cap casualty. And I think that if a fan base is generally upset about a player leaving, it gives you a decent sense that you're getting a good guy. Uh, Rife has graded above a 70 every year, except for two in a nine-year career. So he's been he's been productive. He's been successful. And the Bengals' main priority this offseason had to be to help Joe Burrow. And so now, if you draft Penny Sewell, you slide Jonah Williams inside, and then you have more than half of a functional offensive line with Riley Reef. I, I think I've just switched saying his last name every time, so I'm going to get it right <laughs> one way or another. But I like the signing. He's not a long-term fix. I would have preferred them signing Joe Thune even if it's at less of a premium position because Thune is four years younger. But at the very least, Reef is going to be better than Bobby Hart. <laughs> that is true. It does not take much. It's, it's a low bar. It's a low bar, but I do think he will surpass it. <laughs> yeah, so, so my second offensive tackle was Matt Feiler. Feiler? Feiler? I had him at guard, but that is that is interesting. So yeah, so I think the, Los, the Chargers were planning on having him as a tackle this year. Because um, in 2019, he actually finished with the fifth best pass blocking grade as a right tackle. And then he got moved into left guard out of need for the Pittsburgh Steelers in 2020, where he still put up the 12th best numbers in pass blocking. So it didn't really change much. But um, I've, I've heard that the Chargers are looking to play in that tackle this year, which I think he'll fit right into because he's played it before, was extremely effective at, and that Chargers team needs it badly to protect Herbert and that pass blocking that is just going to give him that even more time to find some of his skilled wide receivers like Keenan Allen. Yep. That Chargers offensive line was an absolute disaster, but it just got so much worse on the interior, which is why I thought he would probably stay at guard. I, I don't know yet. I think he could play both them. As you mentioned, his contract is three years and $21 million, but it can be a two year, $12.5 million contract. If the Chargers want it to be, I can actually realistically see him playing out the entire contract. Cause I expect him to be good. The game that really tipped me off for why the Chargers needed to make a signing like filer, like another player that I'm pretty sure we're going to get to soon was the Patriots game. Because when the Chargers played the Dolphins, and I know this is a different game, the Dolphins overwhelmed uh, Justin Herbert and the Chargers with just a bunch of cover zero blitzes and Herbert couldn't deal with it as a young quarterback. That's understandable. There wasn't that much the offensive line could do. However, when the Patriots played at the Chargers, they didn't do all of that. Even though Brian Flores is a Bill Belichick disciple, what Bill Belichick did was he used a bunch of stunts. He uses a bunch of twists and a bunch of games on the, uh, on the offensive and defensive line to just completely destroy the Chargers interior offensive line and get uh, Justin Herbert completely out of rhythm without sending a bunch of extra guys. And so it was a new way of winning, but it also 
put the blame more squarely on the offensive line. So that was the game that really told me, man, this is a move that needs to happen now because they can't let this happen again next year. Yeah, and they addressed it. So good for them. Unlike some of the other bad teams in the NFL, they actually addressed their offensive line problems head on. And I think that'll definitely pay off for them this season. Okay, he was my first offensive guard. So who do you have at guard? Uh, well, I have Joe Thune. I'm. You might have him as your second offensive guard. Just the fact that that the Chiefs managed to get Joe Thune is ridiculous. Like the <laughs> the rich got richer, and their one problem, which was their offensive line, just got better. And if I can only see like if this offensive line stays healthy with Laurent Duvernay Tardif coming back and everything, I think. There's nothing stopping them from winning the Lombardi this year. And I don't think there's anything that can stop them with Mahomes and healthy offensive line. Yeah. First, they need to replace their tackles because, sure, sure. you know, cutting both your. But yes, um, I agree. I didn't actually end up having him on my list just because it was so much money to give a guard and it's not really a premium position. But I do think it was just, he's just a rock steady player and he's going to play every snap. He's going to, you're going to forget that he's there, which is really just a compliment for offensive linemen. Yeah, that's a, the best, that's the best thing you can do as an offensive lineman. Exactly. So my other guard was Kevin Zeitler. Me too. Who signed with the Ravens for three years, $22.5 million. First thing you need to know about the signing was that it didn't affect the compensatory pick formula because he was cut by the Giants rather than being signed just in pure free agency. And I think it's worth noting that the contract is probably a little rich but it's exactly what the Ravens needed because in 2020, they never figured out how to replace Marshall Yonda, uh, their retiring Hall of Fame center. And what was really unfortunate for them was that they couldn't even get consistently decent play out of their guards. And so once that happened, they were just, they were sort of screwed. Um, and Lamar Jackson struggled with that all of last season. So making the signing was just the perfect fit for them. And I think that the Ravens offensive line is shaping up to be very, very good if Orlando Brown Jr. stays between him, Ronnie Stanley, Zeitler, Bradley Bozeman. And then if they just find a center who can snap the ball, I'm thinking Creed Humphrey would be a great draft pick. It's going to be like a top three, top five offensive line. Yeah, Creed Humphrey is, is on the, the prospect pool for best rookie name next year in the award show that we that we do. Ooh, all right. That's like a wooden list watch or something like that <laughs> in advance. But yeah, Ben Powers and Tyre Phillips did not cut it last year. They each saw 100 run blocking snaps at right guard and yet and ranked 32nd and 34th in run blocking, which was not good enough for, for Lamar Jackson. And it, it's just a need that they filled perfectly for not that much money. And if Kevin Zeitler plays out all three years of his contract, I think that the, the Ravens will be back again and again for, for another shot at the, at, the, at the playoffs. And if that entire line can stay healthy and Lamar Jackson has room to run, they're going to be so good. Yep. So I'm guessing we have the same center, but you know, I'd be a little surprised. You know, we'll see. No, we do. My pick was Corey. Okay. My pick was Corey Lindsley who signed with the chargers for the record. It's sort of a lot of money. It's five years, $62.5 million, but only year one is guaranteed. So they can just cut him pretty easily if they decide it doesn't work out or they don't want to pay him that much. I just had to pick this one because he's by far the best center on the market. And the chargers, as we talked about, desperately needed any help they could get. It's the exact same reasoning as the filer signing. Yeah, and I think that the Chargers actually did a good job because they fought off teams with more money than them who needed a center, and they got what they needed at offensive line. Their direct approach to solving the problems this year is really going to pay off, unlike some of the other teams like 
the Jacksonville Jaguars or the Cincinnati Bengals who are a little more indirect with their signings or a little lower tier. And I think the they're, they're just not going to be nearly as good as the, as the charged offensive line this year. Sure. So I think that does it for our offense, which it took us a while to get through. Yeah. So we might need to speed up a little bit for the defense, but that was, that was definitely interesting. And I think that there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of good signings, a lot of bad ones that we're not going to take the time to talk about, but um, we can start on the edge. Our defense for the record is going to be in nickel personnel. So we can talk about slot cornerback um, and focus on how most NFL defenses are, are run nowadays more at a nickel than at a base. So Adam, who did you have as your first edge defender? So I actually had two good edge defenders, one that I chose over the other, and then three bad ones because there were so many bad signings at edge this year. And I think you can okay. I think you can name I think you can name all three if you if you thought about it. But Romeo Aquara is who I who I decided on as a good signing. I think that this was actually one of the most underrated signings this offseason or re-signings. Because no one was really talking about it, but he was insanely good this year. He had 10 sacks, 29 quarterback hits, 30, 30 quarterback hurries, nine knockdowns, and three forced fumbles on a defensive line that really wasn't showing much pressure anywhere else. And they he was double teamed often and focused on by offensive lines. And yet he still put up insane numbers for a Lions defense that was pretty abysmal. So I, I think that signing was insane and uh, really well done by the Lions. And they, during a year, some pretty poor signings. Yeah, I got to agree with that. I think it went under the radar because he did resign before free agency started. So no one was really thinking about it, but definitely a good signing. He had his breakout year last year, so it'll be useful to see if he can carry that over. But I think he just wanted to stay in Detroit with his brother um, and it worked out nicely for them. Yep, I 100% agree. Who did you have at age? I had, okay, so I have two guys. I did not compile a list of bad ones, although I'm sure yours are good. So we'll get to those in a sec. My first edge is I'll go with Carl Lawson. Yep, he was my honorable of the Jets, yep. who signed for three years, $45 million. And he was really like the trendy pick around among sports writers because last year he had, he was third in the league in pressures and had by far the most knockdowns. He had 27 in 2020, which is a lot, a lot of knockdowns. He only had five and a half sacks, so his value wasn't sky high. But if you compare this signing to Trey Hendrickson, who got an almost identical deal, like almost identical money, but for one more year and with significantly less proven production, just slightly more sacks, I love this signing. I, I got to say, I am furious because the Jets signed him and they signed Corey Davis to such good deals. And I'm not used to the Jets making smart signings. Like I am used to them making a signing that we will talk about later, which made me feel a lot better about the Jets' future prospects as a Dolphins. They'll, they'll make up for it in their draft. Yeah. But yeah, you, you took the words out of my mouth for, for Trey Hendrickson. He was one of my awful ones. $60 million for four years for a guy that really has only proven his 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 only proven stats are his sacks. And that's not really something you want in a defender. You want to see clear production. And that's just something that you haven't seen out of Trey Hendrickson. I don't think he'll be able to do it on his own, which is kind of the situation he's been put in in Cincinnati. And that 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 is going to fall flat on his face. Who is your second edge defender? Yeah, and I just want to note that for Trey Hendrickson, I'm going to guess that he can be cut after the season. It's going to be one year, $20 million for the Bengals, which is just a lot of money um, to replace a guy who they could have had stay, who is significantly better. But um, my second edge defender, if I had to guess, you didn't have him, but let's see. 
I chose Kyle Van Noy, who signed with the Patriots again. He signed for two years, $12 million, one year after getting $51 million from the Dolphins. So just, you know, a masterclass by Bill Belichick. And there's just so many paths to seeing him succeed again this year because with the Dolphins, he dropped into coverage three times more than he did with the Patriots in 2019 when he earned that $51 million contract. So when you put him in a rotation with Chase Winovich, Matthew Judon, and all those other guys, and you let Bill Belichick deploy him in the correct way, I think he's going to be really successful for a really cheap cost. Okay. Yeah, I didn't have him. I had Carl Lawson, but he was uh, – that, that's what I meant to say. I meant to say Carl Lawson was my second guy. Um, he For Kyle Van Noy, I was looking at, but I just didn't think he was as good of a signing as O'Clara and Lawson, but also fantastic signing. But I thought there were some pretty bad ones too. All right, so you go through those. Who did you choose so beyond Trey Hendrickson? Behind, um, behind Trey Hendrickson, I had Bud Dupree, first of all, for five years, $82 million. $82 million. And I had uh, Leonard Floyd, which I think you'll agree with. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I, I'm looking into, as you talk, I'm looking into the exact numbers behind Bud Dupree because I actually don't know what they are. So go ahead. Yeah, so I think this is one of the riskier decisions made because they're paying him so much money and he had an ACL tear in um, December, I want to say. He he was insane before that, but it's so risky to do on, to spend that much money, $35 million guaranteed on a edge defender that is coming off an injury. And I don't want to say he's, he's not good, but he's not great. Six of his seasons has ended with a sub-62 pass rush grade, according to PFF. And sure, he's energetic and he brings a lot to a defense. He's not worth that much money. It might be a slight overpay, but the Titans desperately needed an edge rusher. I was actually considering Dupree as one of my good contracts because I think he's going to be really good for them. I think we talked about this a few weeks ago that I would rather have Dupree than... I don't remember who we were discussing, but I think that Dupree is significantly better at creating his own sacks than a lot of these guys who sign big contracts are. And if the Titans want, they can get out of this in two years for only $34 million, which isn't an insane amount. They'll take some dead cap hit, but they can get out of that pretty reasonably as the cap jumps in the coming season. So I don't really hate that one. I definitely hate the Leonard Floyd contract. Yeah, this is a whole Dante Fowler situation. Any team that signs a Leonard Floyd type player is ridiculously stupid. And uh, if you can come up with any reasonable reason for them to spend that much money on Leonard Floyd, I I would love for you to enlighten me, but I don't think you can. I mean, Robert Quinn got that contract. Then Leonard Floyd got that contract. Neither of them worked. So what is going to make Leonard Floyd successful beyond playing with Aaron Donald? Like, here's the question, actually. I think the most logical outcome of all this is Leonard Floyd is really successful. He has a similar season to last year because he's played next to Aaron Donald, but we won't know, although we can probably assume based off of past years, how much production they would have gotten out of a guy who they could have had for a fraction of the cost. Yeah. Actually, my one guy, sorry, Adam, the one guy who I suggested should go to the Rams and who ended up signing with another team who I think is the perfect comparison is Tack McKinley. We talked about a few weeks ago. He ended up signing with the Browns. He was one of my honorable mentions because if you're not going to go to the Rams to play across from Aaron Donald, go to the Browns and play across from Miles Garrett. I think it's just such a great landing spot for him. He got a short one-year contract that doesn't have too much risk for the Browns, but can pay off huge when he gets the benefits of rushing across from Garrett. That's enough on the edge. Let's just move into the interior where 
I was not really a fan of any of the contracts handed out to interior linemen this season, although there are some good guys still left on the market. Uh, Sheldon Rankins. Um, there's a couple other guys who I think could actually be pretty decent this year who have yet to be signed. So we could actually see some good signings coming up in the future. Out of the guys who have already gone off the table so far, I went with J.J. Watt, I guess, as my first interior lineman, which we already talked about his contract. The reason I sort of like it now is because the Cardinals brought back Marcus Golden, which means that Watt can actually probably play mostly inside where he's going to be more effective. And so I thought that was actually will work or that'll actually work out decently if he can stay inside. I'm, I'm glad you chose me too to give your explanation because I was going to have to BS some explanation on why I thought he was going to be good next year. He'll be decent. There wasn't too many options at interior defensive line, and it wasn't a bad pickup. So I also had him as one of mine. My last interior defensive lineman was Roy Robertson Harris, who signed with the Jaguars for three years, $23 million. Honestly, I had not heard of him until he signed. (laughs) I, I looked into his numbers, actually, a little bit, and I did like it more. He probably got signed for a little bit too much. Yeah, but the Jaguars have a lot of money, so it worked out. It's not too bad. It's not too much of a hit for them. And in 2020, he played only 23% of snaps, which is why we hadn't heard of him, actually. In 2019, because Akeem Hicks was injured for most of the Wait, wait, don't say we hadn't heard of him. You hadn't heard of him. I know who Fine, I, I will cast this. Harris <laughs> Fine, I will cast this blame on myself. In 2019, because Akeem Hicks was injured for most of the year, he played 50% of snaps. And in 2018 and in 2019, he had seven knockdowns and over 20 pressures. So as a long athletic rusher, the Jaguars are betting on upside here, which is a pretty good thing for them to do as a young team with a lot of cap space. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I ended up going with Adam Butler for my for your Miami Dolphins. <laughs> I, thought, didn't go, I, I didn't even go that far. <laughs> I thought it was a solid signing. I just went cheapest here because... I thought for the money, it was a solid deal. Um, he has 15 sacks in his four NFL seasons and 96 total tackles, nine passes defended, one forced fumble. Not bad for a young player who hasn't seen the field that much on the Patriots with their pretty constantly good defensive line. I think that was his increased role under Flores. He'll definitely increase in production as well. And I think $4 million will end up seeming pretty, seeming pretty cheap for him per year. I hope you're right. I, I desperately hope you are. And I do agree. I, I see the upside here. So let's go to linebacker where not that many interesting signings. So we'll go through this quickly, but we do have one signing where we need to laugh about it because it might've made me the happiest out of anything that happened in free agency. So do you want to start with that, Adam? Or do you want to come back to that? Let's, at the let's end? come back to that at the end. I'll start with um, the, the first pick I wrote down before. I think this might've been my first one on the entire list of players because it was actually the earliest uh, Levante David being re-signed for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You had it as well. Of course. Easiest decision you can make as a, as a Buccaneers. I think that should, if that wasn't, that should have been their first person that they re-signed this offseason. He's one of the most underrated players of the last decade. He hasn't slowed down at all. And he's consistently provided in that interior and exterior support that has held that defense together. I can't, we can't stop saying enough good things about Levante David. Yeah. And because we actually have, I'm going to talk a little bit less about his just on the field ability as amazing as he is. What's really impressive about this contract. And this is more Levante David probably agreeing to do this. And the Buccaneers really striking a deal is that he only has a $3 million cap hit in 2020. And they added some void years to spread out the money. So by doing that, it allowed them to bring back Shaq Barrett. So just another good signing that allows the Buccaneers to keep the band back together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Who is your second linebacker? 
my second linebacker, well, I have two. I'm only going to talk about one because the other one just isn't that interesting. Keanu Neal, who signed with the Cowboys to be their will linebacker after previously being a safety. I actually don't know how this is going to work. I just sort of want to talk about Keanu Neal a little bit, um, which is why I wanted to do this. We have seen safeties transition in the past to linebacker. I mean, he has shown the physicality to do so. So he, there is definitely a path for him to do so. I didn't really think he needed to transition from safety, but it's a very reasonable contract. It's like one year, $5 million for the Cowboys. So yeah, look at it. Oh, I'm sorry, Adam. Um, it's it's a super reasonable contract and it's all upside, pretty much no cost. Super reasonable. It seems like any team could have put up $5 million for Keanu Neal, especially because you need him as a strong safety. But who, who cares? Uh, moving on from Keanu Neal. Oh, God. Um, my, my second linebacker was someone you were actually talking about, whether it was last podcast or two podcasts ago, Jayon Brown for the Tennessee Titans. He was the one who I didn't talk yeah. about. One year, $5 million. You already talked about him a lot. We don't really need to go over it again. Young linebacker, a lot of upside, only $5 million. Same reasoning. Exactly. Yeah. Let's move on. It was a low cost, low commitment. So there we go. We're moving on to the fun part of this. The Jets signing Gerard Davis to a one-year, $5.5 million contract. The worst signing of the offseason, except for maybe Nelson Aguilar. Maybe. (laughs) This contract is so funny. Adam, I'm going to sum it up in one quote, which was taken by the Detroit Free Press. Um, He said it last offseason. This is by Gerard Davis himself. Definitely, I need to improve to continue to get better in the run game. Can always improve in that area. And just, I have the talent to be a good coverage linebacker, but I just haven't been able to show it. I haven't been able to show exactly what I can do in that area yet, whether it be overthinking or just trying to do too much. So by Gerard Davis's own admission, he hasn't been good in the run game or in the pass game. So can someone explain this, this Rubik's Cube to me? Because I, I don't understand it. Hey, don't look at me. I'm not a, a genie. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why they spent $5.5 million on a, on a random NFL player. I think they might have like spun a wheel. No, they said they spent $5.5 million on a first round pick. That is the only reason he got this money. Yeah, I think, I think they like spun a wheel with all the linebackers in the NFL, like and it landed on Gerard Davis, and they're like, oh, we have to offer him something. And they were like, let's go in $5.5 million, more, more than Jayon Brown, more than Keanu Neal. What? Oh, never mind. I don't know. I can't even begin to fathom it. This signing restored my faith in the Jets continuing to be the Jets under Joe Douglas. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was something was up, and then, and then we were like, okay, there they are. Okay, so our next position that I actually think had maybe three of the best signings of the entire offseason, or at least best value, is slot corner. So I have a couple different guys. My top pick was Justin Coleman, who signed with my Miami Dolphins for one year, $2.5 million. He's only 28 years old, and he signed a big contract with the Lions two years ago, which didn't work out because nothing worked out under Matt Patricia. But I think it's just an absolute steal for a probably high-level starter. And as I mentioned before, Nickel packages have become so common in the NFL when the Dolphins already have so much invested in their outside corner slots to be able to get a guy to play in the slot for so little money is so useful. The one interesting thing that this signaled to me is that Noah Igbinogani, their first round pick last season, is probably going to focus on playing outside corner and be a backup, I guess, for this season rather than learning to play the slot, which was a topic of debate last season because with this signing, they don't need him to do that. And instead, I guess he can just focus on the outside and maybe they'll get something out of him. I was looking at that one too. 
But I ended up going with Troy Hill. And I have an honorable mention too, which you might also think about. Troy Hill. I have two honorable mentions and Troy Hill did not make the cut. Although also a great signing that I just actually forgot about because there's so many good ones at this position. Cleveland Browns, Troy Hill, two years, $9 million, $4.5 million a year. This doesn't even make him one of the 40 highest paid cornerbacks in the league. And yet he ranked 14th in coverage and 20th in war uh, generated among all cornerbacks. He's getting no money. But he is one of the best lot corners in the NFL uh, and is one of the most at uh, one of the most undervalued positions in the game. He was number one in coverage out of all slot corners, according to Pro Football Focus. He's incredibly underrated. And for only $4.5 million a year, that is a ridiculously cheap signing for someone that's so much better than that. That's definitely a really, really good signing. The Browns are going to be a problem next year really? because I have yeah. another good signing of theirs later. I actually have two more guys who you haven't mentioned yet. So my honorable mentions are Mike Hilton, who signed yep. with the Bengals for four years, $26 million. Yep. He's just a really, really good slot cornerback who's good against the run and as a blitzer. He's a young player who, who the Steelers definitely would have liked to keep around. They just couldn't afford it. So another a great pickup by the Bengals. And my final uh, slot corner is someone who we both like, Desmond King, who signed with the Texans for one year. $3 million. It's a very similar story to Justin Coleman. He's still a good player, and he's also a very, very good punt returner, so it just provides extra value. The Texans' plan this offseason under Nick Casario seems to be signing as many decent players and also some that aren't to short-term deals and just seeing who sticks, which I think is a reasonable plan to just try to build out of the hole that they've been left in. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, I had Mike Hilton as my second slot corner. I think that both of those are very good signings. I think the slot cornerbacks are ever more uh, uh, underrated this year as they've ever been. And Troy Hill, that might be my decision as the best value signing this offseason so far. That is, yeah, that's definitely way up there. I haven't really thought about the best, but that is interesting. Moving on to outside corner, we only have a couple positions left, but my first pick at outside corner was Jason Verrett who we've raved about a bunch. He signed for one year, $5.5 million. And the 49, oh, he re-signed actually with the 49ers. But a chunk of the money is also in per game bonuses where he has to be active to get it. So the 49ers shielded themselves against injury, which is obviously his biggest concern. Basically, if Verrett is active and healthy, he's going to be good. I think is basically what we've come down to. Yeah, I, I put him as an honorable mention because I feel like we've talked about him quite a bit. So um, I think we should move on to our my next one. Uh, so, so my first outside corner was William Jackson. I think that this was a very good signing by the Washington football team. Uh, three years, $40.5 million. Instead of just going out and finding like this average replacement for Ronald Darby, they got one of the best cornerbacks in the 2021 free agency class, if not the best. And he's being paid cornerback two money for cornerback one role. He had one of the five best man coverage grades uh, in the NFL last year. His matchup with a number one wide receiver is such an important aspect to his game that the Washington football team didn't really have last year or struggled with a little bit towards the end of the season. And he's going to be a good fit in Washington. That's definitely a smart signing. I don't entirely understand the Bengals letting him leave. It just seems like 
that would have been a good spot to invest their money in a young player who maybe isn't quite as good as he might have shown as a rookie, but still very good. And the Washington football team just did a great job of replacing Ronald Darby with someone better than him. Yeah. Do you want to do the other outside corner or do you want to go to safety first? Uh, let's do the other outside corner while we're here. I think we have the same one. So I didn't have um, William Jackson, but he was an honorable mention for me. My final outside corner is Kyle Fuller, who signed with the Broncos yeah, for one okay, year, $9 million. I am actually a little surprised that no one gave up a pick to get him, even at like, I think a $13 million salary. So pretty high. He was pretty good last year. Um, and it's just a perfect fit in Denver because he's familiar with Vic Fangio's scheme because Vic Fangio obviously got hired to be the Broncos coach after being the Bears defensive coordinator. It's actually really impressive what the Broncos have done by completely rebuilding their cornerback room after having the worst cornerbacks in the league last season. So by getting fuller. And then, as I mentioned before, Ronald Darby on what I think is a pretty reasonable deal, although maybe a little bit riskier than this one. Yeah. And I, I, I hundred percent agree, but I do think that one cornerback signing that we kind of have to talk about is pretty breaking. Like three hours ago, the giants spent $39 million for three years with the Dory Jackson. <laughs> what do you think about this? I can see your physical reaction. We want to give your insight. I don't even have that strong of an opinion on it. I think there's really high upside and really, really low downside is sort of where I'm at on this. He's shown flashes of excellence, but he's still not a good tackler. He's not very physical. And there's just so much downside that the Titans were willing to cut him. Like the Titans had the worst secondary in the league last year. It's not all of Dory Jackson's fault. It's really not any of their individual faults, but he was definitely part of it. And there was a reason they cut him. So that's just a lot of money to give a guy who was just recently cut. Yeah. I hundred percent agree. Our last two positions are the safety slots where I didn't really break it up into free safety and strong safety, but I sort of did. So my first choice was Anthony Harris, who signed with the Eagles for one year, $5 million. I'm not quite as high on Anthony Harris. I think as you are, I don't think he's quite the player as some people think he is. And clearly teams didn't think that either no one else was willing to give more than $5 million, which I think is pretty crazy. I was actually stunned by that. So I think he definitely should have gotten more than that. He's just a good free safety who can, who can prevent people from getting past him and is smart enough to get good breaks on the ball. He's not a particularly explosive athlete or anything like that, but he's going to be a good free safety and to get him for $5 million is a complete steal. Now, my one question is why do the Eagles need him? Like they're not trying to win they're, or they're not going to win at the very least in 2020 with or without Anthony Harris. Yeah. I, I just think this one along with Hill were my, was my other pick for biggest deal. I think people are forgetting how good Anthony Harris is in 2019. He had like one of the best safety seasons of recent history, but while he did have regression last year, people are like starting to like look past the fact that, he was working with an entirely new cornerback group. The pass rush for the Vikings took a major step back. And it's just a situation that any safety would have faulted in. And yet he still had a career high in tackles. I don't know how he went for $5 million, but any team should have picked him up for that value. And somehow Howie Roseman was the smartest GM in the NFL. Don't say that under any, under any circumstances. <laughs> I think the reason that he had trouble getting a big contract was because he definitely had a worse season this past year and he's going to be 30 next season. So I think he took this contract as a way to rebuild his value, but I don't know how much more can climb even if he has a good season because he's going to be 31 and people don't generally pay 31 year old safeties. Fair, but he, he's very underrated. 
I, I think he, well, I don't know. I think he's actually higher rated by the fans than he is by general managers at this point, actually. The final player on my board is the other safety position, which I gave to John Johnson, yeah. who signed Any a three-year. person would have given that to John Johnson. Three-year, $34 million contract with the Browns, which is really just a two-year, $24 million contract, so even more reasonable. He's such a perfect fit in Cleveland. I talked about this last week with all of their split field looks. It just keeps his role so similar to what it was in Los Angeles. So we know he's going to be good because he's already succeeded in that system. I really like it. I talked about it last week. Yeah, we've about talked you? about John Johnson so much this season, this offseason. And I there's really not enough we can say, but he's very underrated. And I think that was the best, one of the better signings of the offseason. Absolutely. I did have one bad strong safety, though. Okay. And that was Rayshon Jenkins, four years, $35 million to the Jags. This dude is somehow managed to get himself a four-year, $35 million contract as a bottom half safety in the NFL. He hasn't shown any type of – he almost got cut multiple times. He's not a good safety by any standard. He ranked 39th out of 52 qualifiers in PFF, or like an overall grade. He hasn't been in the top 50th percentile in any of the years in his career. His run defense ranked near the bottom of the league, too, as he had the 63rd best run defensive grade out of 73 safeties. He hasn't shown any reason why he should get money, and yet he got paid four years for $35 million. I Sorry, I had to get this one off my chest because it went under the radar, but how did a general manager let that happen? What did Rayshon Jenkins do to you? Jesus he's Christ. Awful, and he got paid so much money. I think he's good. No, he's I not. like Rayshon Jenkins. He's, he's oh, not. Yeah, yeah, he is. First of all, I don't know where you're getting your numbers. He's 29th out of 94 qualifiers. And second of all, I think he's actually pretty good. He's done a decent job filling in for Derwin James and playing a bunch of different roles, which the Chargers needed him to do because Derwin James has been injured and Nasir Adderley hasn't been as good as they hoped he'd be. I actually like, I think, I think the contract is a little much. I think he got a little bit too much money. I don't think he's a bad player. Sorry, I was looking at the 2019 numbers, but still, he hasn't shown anything to prove why he's worth that much money. He has done, like, sure, he's been he's been decent, but he hasn't been good in any means, and I think he's going to suck on the Jaguars. I think a lot of people are going to suck on the Jaguars. I don't necessarily think he's going to be the problem with that defense. I think he's a fine player. I think he got a little bit too much money. I, think he's I can't be too upset about that. I think that. he's going to be a hole on that defense. God damn, I did not expect to end this podcast with so much Sean Jenkins hate. <laughs> All right, the way we're closing this out is just because we spent so much time looking at cap hits and looking at just so many contracts over the past couple of days, I want to talk a little bit about the trends that we saw because this offseason is weird. So it's really hard to know if any of them are going to stick. The, one, the two things I noticed, and I did just want to go over it with you to see what you thought, was that looking at the way that contracts have been structured for this year's free agents, we are seeing a lot of really, really low 2020 cap hits. Uh, teams are generally alleviating that with large signing bonuses that they prorate over a couple years. And then also a lot of void years, which Taysom Hill was obviously the most egregious example, but you're seeing it in a ton of contracts. Maybe some of you wouldn't expect guys like John Johnson, Levante David. They're just spreading those all around and a lot more teams are using them than they have in the past. So I don't know. Do you think this is going to stick or do you think this is just a COVID cap year exception? And once the cap balances out and keeps rising, it probably is going to disappear. Hmm. I, th I think that as we continue on, the good players are going to get more expensive and the medium players are going to get cheaper. So I think we're going to see a lot more of these 
signings overall that are much cheaper than normal. But I think that mega extensions, so the main guys are going to get huge and teams are going to become based around one or two players that they're paying so much money for. And I think that this is a direction we've been heading in pretty recently with these mega extensions. And I think we're going to start seeing it a lot more in the future. And we're going to see cheaper contracts overall, but higher contracts on the higher level with the top tier players. So that's interesting. That's something I think I'd need to dig into a little bit more before I could agree or really disagree with that. I think quarterback sellers are going to keep going up at a disproportionate level, although they always have. I think at the rest of the positions, I think it's going to be a little bit more balanced just because when the salary cap jumps, it's actually going to seem a lot more even. And I actually sort of agree that the middle tier players are going to get squeezed just because that's what I've seen happen a lot in baseball um, and in other sports. It's just tough to be a mid-tier player when you can get replaced by a younger guy. And that's especially ruthless in football. So we could definitely see that. I'm not sure about the a couple giant salaries just because it's so much harder to build a team around one or two players, even if they're a quarterback in football, than it is to build a basketball team around LeBron James and Anthony Davis. I talked about this actually a couple of episodes ago, but football, I think more than most other sports is a weak link problem where you're only as good as the worst player on the field for you. And so that's why it's sort of hard to invest only in one or two amazing players and just completely ignore the other positions on the field. I wanted to ask you one more question before we end it. As free agency continues, how are your hopes on Deshaun Watson going? Are they, are they rising? Are they going down? What, what, what are your thoughts? Is this a question about whether, whether the Dolphins have a better chance of trading for him yeah. or whether I think that they should trade for him based on the recent allegations? I guess both. That's a really, really hard question to answer, Adam. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You can go give me something vague and we can wrap up the, co- the podcast on a rather lighthearted note. Yeah, I, we need to talk about Deshaun Watson. I just didn't think that this was necessarily the episode to yeah, do Yeah, I think we should bring it up next time, maybe. I agree. I agree. I think we'll have time for it then. So I'm actually going to leave that part so we can have, I can have a more informed conversation about it next week. Mm-hmm. But I do want to address it. As for free agency, I think it puts the Dolphins a little bit closer. And the main reason I think that is because I think the Panthers sort of screw themselves a little bit more. And the Panthers are probably the Dolphins top competition. While I also think that the Jets are barreling towards drafting a quarterback rather than trading for Deshaun. So that's why I think that the Dolphins might be a little bit closer, not necessarily anything that they specifically did, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I I get that. And we don't want to get too much into it. Maybe we'll talk about that division next week. Yeah, so we will be back then. Thanks for listening.